The political rhetoric is red hot and downright rude at times. You graduated last in your class, not first in your class. (laughs) Will you shut up, man? But is there a business cost from incivility? Incivility can be distracting. We have a very strict no-jerk policy. Rudeness is like the common cold. It's actually very, very easily spread. I'm Tom Hudson. Today on The Sunshine Economy, the cost of incivility. Plus, the bartender, baker, and banker navigating the pandemic economy in South Florida. I'm not making the same amount of money now than I was when we initially moved here. I can't complain, and and that's what gives me peace to be doing other things, you know, that I see the company is strong. We actually approved uh, over $13 million worth of new loans. It's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. In today's program, we will not be talking about unemployment, paychecks, or revenue. We won't be covering economic statistics or dig into corporate financial results. Instead, with the election bearing down, COVID infections climbing, and trust between Americans eroding, we're going to talk about civility and how it affects our economy. The idea of civility goes by a lot of names. People treating each other as they would like to be treated. As an American, you automatically go just to politeness, right? And being respectful of each other. Basically, talking to people like with respect and politeness. So maybe I I would equate civility with just fairness. Being polite, patience, the lack of rudeness, listening for understanding, not the absence of disagreement, but disagreeing with respect. Basically, the opposite of what reality television has based its business model on. I, so let's just, but let's sit there. Okay. You know what? Sure. The truth is the truth. Excuse the me. Truth I'm is the talking truth. right now. The truth is and the you truth. Came after and I'm going to Just oh. take one good look at yourselves in the mirror because it's a f- disgrace. The business of incivility is good. Reality television is incredibly profitable and popular. Social media attacks attract eyeballs. We really talk about engaging differences constructively. Keith Allred is the executive director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse. Yes, there's a think tank focused on civility. Civility is about engaging those differences in a constructive, respectful way. That goes far beyond mere politeness or decorum. And there's an economic cost in how we treat each other. Surveys have found people don't work as hard when they experience incivility at work. Creativity suffers, collaborations can collapse, and customers can be turned off. Just consider how people react to public health measures put in place to help slow the spread of COVID-19. The political polarization around mask wearing has, has been one of the most distressing pieces I've seen. Despite public health experts advising people to wear masks in public to protect themselves and others, social media is filled with posts of confrontations in public over wearing masks. The pandemic has merely amplified incivility. For a decade, about two-thirds of Americans have described incivility as a major problem in an annual survey from public relations firm Weber Shandwick. 
It goes deeper and longer, as emphasized in the social and economic justice protests sparked after the killing of George Floyd in May by a Minneapolis police officer that was recorded on video. Terry Williams is the CEO of One United Bank, the largest black-owned bank in the United States. It has a branch in Miami. When people are not civil, uh, it's being recorded (laughs) and it's being shown on social media. And so you start to see things that we've experienced, but in the past uh, were hidden um, from the rest of the world. And now with technology, they're being recorded and shown on social media, et cetera. As the criminal case continues, Floyd's family also has filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city of Minneapolis. The reaction to the Floyd killing and the subsequent reckoning over racism has led to more business at One United Bank. We've actually uh, doubled our customers. We've reached 100,000 customers. And as a black bank, that has not happened since 1903 in the country um, that a black bank would be that size. This is just one example of a financial market response to calls for racial and economic justice in an industry that historically has put up barriers like limiting loans or charging higher interest rates for black borrowers. There's so many ways in which, um, whether it's public policy or norms, um, actually impact uh, the black community in uncivil ways. Incivility intersects the economy in obvious and subtle ways. These days, it's really concentrated around politics. That's still to come. We really are reaching all-time lows in our ability to engage differences constructively. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Today, we're talking about civility and how it affects the economy. Congress has been deadlocked over another pandemic economic stimulus plan for months now. Stimulus checks were sent out in the springtime. Additional unemployment payments ran out in late July. Yet there's no agreement on any new round of help for the economy as the pandemic wears on and Election Day nears. It's been a full year since President Trump and House Speaker Democrat Nancy Pelosi have spoken, according to political news site The Hill. At that time, the president tweeted a photo calling her Nervous Nancy. In February, after the president's State of the Union address, the speaker ripped up a copy of his speech. Keith Allred watches this as the executive director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse. Keith, welcome to the Sunshine Economy. Describe the state of civility today even less than two weeks out from this very heated election? Well, we really are reaching all-time lows in our ability to engage differences constructively. And, you know, it's particularly pointed uh, here close to the election. This has been a a particularly fraught uh, election uh, with lots of incivility. But the unfortunate part is that this represents a high watermark of a tide that has been rising for a long time, going back at least to the late 1970s, when the two political parties started to sort themselves out ideologically. Prior to that, for our entire history, for the previous 200 years, our political parties had had a mix of conservatives, moderates, and liberals in them. And that started to change really for the first time in a, in a long-term way in our history in the late 1970s. 
And with that came a rising tide of incivility as uh, politicians started playing more and more to their base, to their extremes, trying to use fear and anger about the other side as a way of motivating their base. So, you know, it's even more sobering than just what we've seen in recent weeks. It it really is a several decades long trend. You call it a high watermark. Yeah, maybe call it a low low watermark. Well, I I say that because one could interpret that as optimistic, that it, it can't get any worse than what we're experiencing now. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that's true. Um, you know, and the tide analogies may be wrong because tides naturally go out. Um, and, and there's nothing really to suggest that that will necessarily happen. I think these deep structural changes in the two parties um, are unlikely to reverse themselves. It's unlikely that you're going to get conservatives coming back into the Democratic Party and liberals coming back into the Republican Party. And as long as that's kind of a fundamental systemic driver of some of these other manifestations we're seeing, you know, the trend lines continue to go the wrong direction. Uh, Polarization and incivility continue to increase. How does incivility express itself? What does that mean for people? What's the manifestation of that? And is it different than just being rude or short with somebody or not accepting their, their version of events? It is critical for us Uh, to get to the practical need to get the benefit from everybody's perspective. And that's true in a business, Uh, you know, and I'm sure you hear like we do that even within businesses, you're seeing uh, increasing incivility. So take the business example first. It's just critical in a business that you can get your whole team and the range of perspectives and expertise that they bring Uh, and bring that to bear on a particular problem or strategic question that the business faces. You're going to just make better decisions, right, if you can engage those differences constructively and get the benefit of the differences. And that's true for us as a nation at large. We are a big, diverse country. Are there economic consequences of incivility? Yeah, absolutely. It just affects the quality and speed of our decision-making when we confront real problems. So you consider the pandemic and what our response should be. You know, the early response in Congress was really quite good and very bipartisan, pretty quick. Uh, Congress kind of came together early in the pandemic uh, to, you know, put together some some really necessary, important responses uh, to the pandemic and kept the economic impact from being a lot worse than it has been. Of course, that discourse in the Congress has really eroded. And here we are a couple of weeks out from the election, and it doesn't look like they'll be able to do another stimulus package, not because anybody thinks that there doesn't need to be one, They just can't engage differences constructively enough to get one. You know, we feel that at kitchen tables, Uh, small businesses uh, going out of business, people losing their jobs, uh, people not getting the support, the unemployment support that uh, they probably should. Uh, and, And so that's a really concrete economic impacts that come from that. And more broadly, as we 
do these swings, what tends to happen where we have, you know, the base of each party trying to impose their will on everybody else is as soon as one party gets in power, has the White House, the House and the Senate, then they try to pass measures that are more extreme than what the country at large wants. And so then there's a backlash and it swings over to the other party. And so for businesses, that lack of predictability and stability in the economic environment, the regulatory environment, the policy environment, just really makes it hard uh, to conduct business effectively. Makes it very difficult for those businesses to make long-term investment decisions in uh, jobs, certainly, as well as uh, other kinds of investment decisions. One characteristic of civility is trust. Trust in the common good, that uh, whatever the issue may be, you are trusting that someone with a view counter of yours still has the best of intentions toward a good conclusion. What is that common good today? Who gets to define that, do you think, Keith? Yeah, that's the problem is that we're so lacking in voices that can speak credibly to not just advancing a narrow partisan or special interest, but the, you know, the national interest, the common good. No one person can speak for it. So ultimately, the fundamental truth of self-government and a republic is that the people speak for themselves, right? That we get to go to the polls and also uh, address our members of Congress. Uh, I really think that the American people are going to have to be our saving grace. So we have a lot more common ground than we think. We're hungry for a different kind of politics. So it's going to be up to us to exercise our authority under self-government to demand something different of our elected officials. Keith, we've focused our conversation around civility and incivility toward politics and the partisanship. But I'm wondering further out, when we look at the economy, for instance, as we see income inequities grow, we see the affordability of housing, transportation challenges for Americans really exposed because of the pandemic economy. Does that kind of separation, how does that kind of, of, of trend fuel incivility or address it? You know, if you look at history, uh, societies have always struggled when there's been profound inequities. Uh, it, it just puts a strain on the government and the economy when that's the case. And, and it, it creates a bit of turmoil and instability. It makes it kind of volatile. And so back to this notion that, you know, an economy, not to mention a nation, does better with some stability and predictability to it. It creates that kind of proclivity to getting stirred up and things being uh, kind of unsteady. And so I, I think we all have an interest in addressing those kinds of equities. And, and from an economic perspective and from a country where we believe we're all created equal and should have equal opportunity, the extremity of the parties today make it really hard for us to get to sensible solutions on this. You don't sound so optimistic in the short term. 
<laughs> well, it's yeah, I I think we are in serious sober times. Speaking with Keith Aldred, executive director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse. Still to come, let's dig into how being uncivil toward one another affects us at work and people we do business with. Rudeness is like um, the common cold. Like it's actually very, very easily spread. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening and supporting public radio. I'm Tom Hudson. Amir Erez started his academic career researching positive emotions, but many years ago he was asked by a fellow researcher to examine rudeness. He dismissed any long-term impact from being rude to one another. Yeah, of course, people are insulted, like, and maybe it influenced their well-being for a little bit, but I didn't think that it uh, have much more of an effect on that because people get over it. But we don't get over it. It harms workplace productivity, relationships between employees, and relationships with customers, all creating a business risk to incivility. And we find absolutely devastating effects. It's just unbelievable. I would never think that we would find this kind of an effect. People are not functioning appropriately. They don't think appropriately. They can't think appropriately. Erez is a business management professor at the University of Florida. He has found incivility affects how people think, increases risks of mistakes, and spreads like a virus. Rudeness has a contagion effect. So, for example, if I'm being rude to you and you interact with somebody else, like you tend to be more rude to this somebody else. Like, so the contagion effect here is that I had no interaction with the third party, but my rudeness still affected them. So this is one thing. Like in another study, we found that, that if people experience rudeness in the morning, it influenced them throughout the day and they perceive other people as more rude. Why is incivility contagious? What happens is in rudeness, it activates things in your mind that are related to rudeness and they can linger for a long time. So if I observe you being rude, um, it activates what the rudeness concept in our mind. And as long as this be, uh, remains activated, like when you observe even neutral events in the environment that could maybe potentially be interpreted as rude, you actually interpret them as rude. While people who do not experience rudeness in the morning do, will not interpret them as rude. And of course, if you interpret things as rude, you tend to be, to be more rude yourself. Hmm. I mean, it really clouds the judgment, as your research has shown, and infects you. To some degree. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, a, this is exactly how we talked about it. We talked about it like the rudeness is like um, the common cold. Like it's actually very, very easily spread. It's not like a, a unique disease like Lyme disease that you need a special agent like, to deliver it. 
Like actually, like rudeness is like the common call in 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 the sense that everybody can catch it and everybody can catch it very 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 quickly. Do you have a sense of whether or not incivility is on the rise in our society, or is it just more visible because of social media and caught on camera kind of interactions that we we can see and can virally spread online? There is evidence that it's on the rise. In 2005, I think, I think um, around 25% of the people in the workplace uh, um, reported that they um, experienced rudeness or witnessed rudeness. And then in 2013, it increased to uh, 98%. So everybody is experiencing it. And 50% of the people experience it every week. Why do you think it's on the increase? Are we becoming more sensitive to it? Are we changing the definition of what is rudeness, what is incivility? Or is it independently increasing? Are we just becoming uh, a more incivil society? So it's difficult to know what are the reasons for that. But my suspicion is that we see it much more. Like we see it much more on TV. We see it like like, um, on the internet. We just see it much more and we imitate this behavior. It's becoming normalized. I think that one of the reasons that people don't pay much attention to that is because they think it's not a big deal. Can we become immune to it? This is interesting because like when I started first like investigating it, I thought people must be become more immune to it. And so they're not influenced by it uh, as much. And I have no evidence for that, just the opposite. So even uh, I investigated some of some of the studies has been done uh, in Israel with uh, customer service representatives and they get it all the time. And they are, their ability to think is diminished uh, in the same way. They actually do not become immune to that. Actually, I have a strong suspicion that they become more sensitized to that. More susceptible to it as opposed to less. Yes. We did a study with nurses. And nurses, like, nurses are getting a lot of it. Actually, more than doctors. Like, it's really, really a hostile work environment for many of them. Was this study before the pandemic, Professor? It was. It was before the pandemic. The way that we conduct our studies, we're uh, inducing rudeness by them, witnessing rudeness and so on. And their response was severe, much more than any other group when they observe the rudeness. So my suspicion is that because they experience it all the time, they're much, much more sensitive to that. So what role do you think companies play in creating civility or enforcing civil behavior? So first of all, like they need to be aware of it, that it hurts their bottom line. Like, and many, many managers do not realize that. They think, of, again, like people will get, will get over it. Well, they cannot. And they should basically do several things. One is not tolerate it. People who, within the company who are uncivil, they should be disciplined. And they should definitely not encourage it. Like there is a like kind of like this notion of the genius like uh, who is uncivil and like they're allowed to be 
like that way and that's definitely like like and because like they they perceive it like that it has no economic impact it's not something that they need to deal with and deal with these people like that are very very smart but uncivil so that is like something that they need to stop because it actually hurts them and it hurts everybody that's one thing but unfortunately like in companies like you don't always have control uh, over everybody especially not over customers so like they need to develop interventions like to help like their employees deal with it better and that it will not influence their performance are there economic incentives to be more civil or economic penalties for being less civil certainly those could be constructed within a workplace within you know your employment or amongst uh, co-workers but what about more generally between companies or between companies and their clients and the general population who may become their customers i think that this will be a very good way like to deal with it like but i i i don't see any evidence for that that it's happening right now the customer is not always right. And companies need to understand that. <laughs> and customers probably need to understand that too. Yeah. And also, like, I think that what our research shows, that it hurts them. If they are being rude to the customer service representatives and they are making mistakes, not on purpose, they're still motivated to help you, but they're just they're not able to think appropriately. So you will not get the right product that you want to. Maybe you should think twice about being rude. Speaking with University of Florida business professor Amir Ares, still to come, why does civility matter in the dollars and cents of doing business? I think it all comes back to, to trust. I think it actually matters more than the dollars and cents. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. You can follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Just search Sunshine Economy with your favorite podcast app. Miami has a growing reputation for fostering entrepreneurship. It's a hard-fought reputation that has helped support the regional economy with small and medium-sized businesses. Susan Amat has made it her job to help nurture entrepreneurs in the sometimes rough and tumbled world of startups, which is why she was surprised I invited her to talk about civility in business. I was very shocked to be brought into a conversation on civility because a lot of people just don't like me. I'm very direct. I want to get things done, and I'm upfront about it. Ahmad is the CEO and founder of VentureHive, which works in the high-risk, high-stress environment of entrepreneurs and startups here in South Florida and across the globe. We, like many programs all over the world, we are focused on building good businesses. But from the beginning of us interacting with that entrepreneur, that innovator, that corporate who wants us to build a, an internal innovation program, they need to understand we have a very strict no-jerk policy. Life is very short. I want to work with people that I like and respect, and that's a big variety of people, but they have to respect us back. 
Respect and trust is also central to the business Terry Williams runs. She's president of One United Bank, the largest black-owned bank in the United States. It has a branch in Miami. Since our community in general has less resources, we are used to being disrespected by banks. We spoke with Terry Williams of One United Bank and Susan Amott of VentureHive via Zoom about civility and business. Susan, why does civility matter in business? I think it all comes back to to trust. So there's a self-serving way of looking at it, and then there's a positive for the world way of looking at it. So for, for my company, we've worked for over a decade to build a brand that's all about being based on trust and quality and accountability and transparency. And if I work with people who are not consistent with those values, that affects my brand, right? So in a completely self-serving way, I have to make sure everybody that is our client, partner, customer has those same set of values because otherwise something's going to go wrong at some point. And I have to protect my team from jerks. In the larger framework, just making sure that you're not giving positive reinforcement to bad behaviors is something I believe in every single day. For you, Terry, why does civility matter in the banking business? I think it actually matters more than the dollars and cents. Maya Angelou made the point that um, people may not remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. So I know that's not exactly right for, for your listeners, but it's close. I do believe that companies are starting to realize that, you know, that it's not just that you offer a great service or your pricing is better than your competitors. It's also, you know, the values of your organization and how you make your customers feel and how involved you are in the community and how you give back to the community. And are you a good corporate citizen? Are you a good community leader? You know, all of those things that are really going into the decision process of the consumer today, like they never have before. Um, And it it also is not something that you can fake, you know, that it really has to be authentic. You know, a lot of companies have tried to fake it and just fallen on their flat on their face. Um, so, and it has to be not just externally to your customers, but internally in how you treat your employees, you know, whether or not you offer them benefits or a living wage and all of those things. And so if you're saying, you know, to the world that you're a great citizen, but you treat your, your employees like they're not human, you know, that that contradiction becomes uh, apparent um, to the world. I actually think that the authenticity, the, the commitment to good values uh, really is more important uh, than the dollars and cents. Terry used a word that's one of my favorite words of all time, which is authenticity. You know, we have turned down so many partnerships and, and relationships because when I start hearing them talk about the announcement and the language that's going to be used versus the meat of what's actually going to happen through execution, I know right away they're trying to use our brand to show something new about themselves. And it's, it's such a simple thing to either understand deeply and be committed to it or clearly show that you're trying to like market yourself or position yourself in a certain way. And it's, it's something that I've seen over the last 
decade as I've gone into different cultures. In so many cultures, there's relationship building, sometimes for weeks or months before there's any discussion of business. And I think that that's something we have to kind of come back to. Do we align as people? Do we have the same values? Is there going to be a long-term relationship here, building value for each other? Or are we just here to make a transaction and then I'm going to go on to the next sale? And I think what Terry kind of touched upon is being that active listener as opposed to just trying to spit out whatever you want to say. And that's definitely a challenge for a lot of people these days where they're folk and, and especially for entrepreneurs, right? They're focused on their messaging. They're focused on what they want to say, but not necessarily listening or understanding the nuance of how it's being heard. So a lot of the work we end up having to do is helping people understand the pain points of a customer, of a, of a voter, of a whomever, and, and get deeper into exactly what their needs are, because then you can solve for it. But if you're just in love with what you're doing and trying to cram it down people's throats, there's just such a disconnect that, that oftentimes great ideas and great businesses die because they just didn't take the time to get that fit or figure out the communication properly. Susan, you replaced the word customer with voter once in that conversation. I found that really interesting because we are in such this political moment here, you know, days away from the end of voting. I'm wondering uh, with the incubator and the entrepreneurial business that you run, Susan, and then the banking business, Terry, that you run, do you experience in your business this sharp political divide that seems to be part of this echo chamber that exists, particularly on cable television and social media? Do you do you see that within your business? Whew. So we work with companies from 200 countries. Um, and it's funny because I just had a, a conversation with a very dear friend of mine in Chile they're going through the exact same thing. We're not hearing about riots. We're not hearing about the divide, but that's happening in countries all over the world. It's not just us. And so it's definitely a major, major challenge because uh, it, we're lucky that for most of the companies that, that we work with in the US, Canada, et cetera, no matter what the election outcome is, if they're solving a problem for a customer, they're gonna be fine, right? In some of these other countries, though, when you have a shift or a political movement like what we're seeing in Chile and some of these other countries, many of these companies won't survive. What role do companies have in promoting civility? Do they, do they hold a role in promoting civility, civil discourse? I think that they actually have an important role. Um, and it's part of the reason that we believe it's important for us to lead by example. Um, even when people come um, criticize us or are not civil to us, we are always respectful, like always. <laughs> and sometimes that's how you it's hard, you know? Um, but we are because we think that, and, and we, we explain, you know, why banking black is not racist and why, you know, um, there are benefits to uh, what we're doing. So we really try to educate as opposed to um, sort of be uncivil back. 
Susan, what do you think about the the role business or companies may have with civility? Well, I think it depends on on the company. I totally agree with Terry. I I, I think your job as a leader in a company should always be showing your employees and your partners the right way to be, right? To be respectful, et cetera. But when I look at what's happening in big tech and how there's a lot of negativity going on and a lot of questionable activities, I think that that's gone really too far because again, when I think about what's happening with online bullying and it goes from the top all the way down and back up again, right? You want to teach young kids how to be respectful to someone they may never meet in person and people really hide behind online tools to pretend or, or say what they really think about things instead of still remembering we're all human beings. We're just on the other side of a computer instead of right in front of us. So when it's, when it's, I I don't have a really good answer other than I think you should always treat people how you want to be treated as, as we started this conversation today. Um, I don't want necessarily more regulation, but I would just hope people would, would think about how it's affecting our culture and, and society as a whole. And definitely young people who are really learning from us how they should be treating each other. It's important for everyone to understand that civility has a cost. And what I mean by that is sometimes um, we think about being um, civil and being respectful as just being a human emotion that we uh, can do to be good, to be good people, <laughs> which is true. But sometimes it's the decisions that you don't make or the decisions that you make against doing something that has a result that's not civil. And sometimes those things could be profitable, but are not the right thing to do. And so that's what I mean by that. Sometimes there's a cost to being civil. It really is important for businesses to make uh, the right decision, even when it costs money. That's One United Bank President Terry Williams and Venture Hive CEO Susan Amat. Now, still to come, catching up with the bartender, baker, and banker navigating the pandemic economy. I'm not making the same amount of money now than I was when we initially moved here. And I actually kind of took a bit of a pay cut. I can't complain. And, and that's what gives me peace to be doing other things, you know, that I see the company is strong. We actually approved uh, over $13 million worth of new loans. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Just search Sunshine Economy. Almost every week this season, we've been hearing from three women, a bartender, banker, and baker, as they see their way through the pandemic for themselves and their businesses. Keisha Scott is the bartender. She lost her job in the spring when restaurants were closed to slow the spread of COVID-19. 
With 20 years of experience in the hospitality business, she was able to quickly find another job when restaurants were able to reopen with restrictions, but her income did not bounce back. Now, after almost two years in Boynton Beach, she and her boyfriend made a big decision in the past week. Kenny and I, my boyfriend and I, decided that we were going to go back home to Austin. Um, and that's where most of his family is. Um, so, you know, all the support there. And then, you know, my tribe, my friends are all there. Some that we've been discussing for quite some time, but just wasn't sure, you know, how to go about it, whether or not it was a good idea. Do we have the time? Do we have the energy? All of that fun stuff. And then I think just with everything just kind of aligning and the week that I had last week just wasn't really my best. (laughs) It just made me really feel like I just, I feel out of my element and I just need to be placed back into my element. I even contacted my old GM and he's like, can't wait to put you back on the schedule. So we, we just kind of aligned ourselves with work. I actually just signed the lease about 10 minutes ago for, (laughs) Yeah, we make moves. You have to in Austin, Texas. It's really it's really hard to to get a place, so you got to scoop it up when you can. When I left Texas initially, you know, to take the job, I said to myself, you know, this is either going to work out or it's not. But if I don't do it, I'll just be sitting here wondering what would have happened if I did do it. You know, so that's why we decided to take the leap and me take the job and relocate here and. I never wanted to live in Florida. The idea was that, you know, I get in with a company, I expand along with the company, um, I'd relocate somewhere else. Like we actually planned to, you know, live here for about two years and then travel somewhere else with the same company until we just felt like we found a place. Like that was the initial conversation. And then when we moved here, we were like, yeah, this definitely isn't for us, but got the job and then the job started to turn out to not really be what it was meant to be. And then I lost all quality of life. And then like the pandemic hit and then it was like, all right, cool. So square one, (laughs) we're already paying way more now than we were in a place there. I mean, we're living in a one bedroom here for the same price I was paying for a three bedroom there. So, (laughs) so financially we knew it was going to, you know, be much better because, you know, I'm not making the same amount of money now than I was when we initially moved here. And I actually kind of took a bit of a pay cut because I went salary instead of, you know, just bartending to to move here in general. With the pandemic, um, you know, when you're having to get a job, you know, the bills don't never change, <laughs> you know, they that, that's still based off the salary. So we had to take that into consideration. But He's got work with his brother and I can go back to the bar that I was at and we're going to, we're paying less in rent and, you know, making more money. So it's, it'll be easier for us to get back on track and back to where we feel comfortable enough to just, you know, just get our life back in order. Bartender Keisha Scott plans on heading back to Austin in December. One thing she'll be taking with her from Florida, her cat, Raja. Ginger Martin had a monthly loan committee meeting last week for the bank she leads, American National Bank, in Fort Lauderdale. It's a community bank that focuses on commercial real estate lending. Now, the demand for loans and quality of borrowers, she says, have bounced back strong from the worst of the pandemic recession. 
The loan committee, it went to awesome. In fact, uh, we actually approved uh, over $13 million worth of new loans. We did a construction loan for really a high-end high uh, you know, residential, um, we did an outpatient surgical center, uh, you know, an industrial owner-occupied industrial, you know, warehouse, a residential condo unit that's already completed uh, that has 15 units. Uh, that, that was probably the biggest one. And then, um, you know, a refinance for, uh, you know, doctor as far as uh, on his on his office. So kind of a variety, but uh, it was strong, um, pipeline and and all of them got approved and so it was productive meeting we were actually looking at kind of the, our year you know year to date uh, numbers you know by month and of course you can you look at that four month period you know starting in in march uh like it was like dead compared to a year ago it's actually stronger. We are optimistic of the demand that we're seeing and the quality, because one thing that our bank examiners are cautioning us on is to be diligent and because of the environment that we're in, uh, to, to make sure that we're not you know, stretching and that these are really good quality loans, because they're concerned about what they call asset quality, you know, underwriting standards being loosened. And so they're encouraging us to, to make sure that we don't lower our standards. And so we're not. So these are good loans. And we're really thinking, of course, you never know. But right now, we're probably projecting another $24 million in loans between you know, now and, and year end. If we achieve that, we will have met our budget that we set for 2020 before we knew we were going to have COVID. You know, we had that four-month lull, and now we're, we're coming back strong. That's American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin in Fort Lauderdale. Last week was also a big week for Pilar Guzman Zavala. She runs Half Moon Empanadas. It had more than a dozen outlets before COVID. Now it makes meals for Miami-Dade County and operates two outlets at Miami International Airport. The big deal in the past week was pitching her business for another big airport, Denver International Airport. The presentation was Friday. It went really, really well. It was pretty positive, yes. Uh, so we got really good feedback from the judges. You know, there was supposed to be a 20-minute Q&A, and it ended up being, you know, like a 10-minute Q&A because they were, I mean, they all had really good comments, you know, before they even there, uh, made their questions. So it was really, you know, comforting to see that what I am seeing, which is, you know, my concept is perfect for airports, other people in the industry are also seeing. So I'm very encouraged today. It makes me feel happy. And, and you know, it's like I, I took a moment to kind of observe and, and be grateful because usually I'm not. I usually go on to the next thing. And I took a run after the presentation. Um, and I, I, I was actually thinking, you know, in 2013 is when we did the presentation for Miami Airport. And I remember how stressed I was, how like it was like huge energy and stressful. And then seeing seeing the presentation, you know, with, with Denver, it was I was a totally different person, like much more mature, you know, more secure. Um, you know, the concept is more solid. So, you know, the evolution of things is what it's you know, gives me energy and and, and it brings me hope for, for this the scaling the business. This week uh, coming it's going to be 
focusing on uh, the website, <laughs> the great website of Hapman Panadas. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just laugh, you know, I have to be patient with that one. Um, every Tuesday I have my operations meeting with my CEO, and that's an important one, you know, it's about how the company is doing, you know, the metrics. Business is good in the sense of, because uh, we have the meals, right? Like, so we are, we're selling uh, empanadas in three stores, but, you know, little compared, like, let's say 20% compared to last year. We have a contract uh, with the county and we serve uh, meals for seniors. So we became... Our kitchen became, you know, a, a restaurant making meals for seniors. So we prepare them and we deliver door to door. After COVID, you know, with, you know, maybe a couple of months or three months after COVID, like around June, we kind of got like an idea of, okay, this is going to be our year. And what we projected to be, it's actually been a little bit better than what we projected. And so, you know, I, I, I can't complain. And, and that's what gives me peace to be doing other things, you know, that I see the company is strong and it's organized and it's and people know what they're supposed to be doing. Pilar Guzman Zavala with Half Moon Empanadas, the baker of our baker, banker, bartender trio we've been hearing from each week as they work to recover from the pandemic recession. You can follow us on Twitter at WLRN. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.